Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So let's talk paper scissors. In our final episode of this series, Nat and I have the immense pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Robin Bourgeois to learn from her heart-centeredness practices in the classroom and beyond. Dr. Robin Bourgeois, Laughing Otter Caring Woman, is a mixed-race Nehiao Isqueo Cree woman whose Cree family comes from Treaty 8 Lesser Slave Lake Territory. She is an associate professor of the Center of Women's and Gender Studies at Brock, where her scholarly work focuses on Indigenous feminisms, violence against Indigenous women and girls, and Indigenous women's political activism and leadership. She is currently serving as the university's acting vice provost Indigenous engagement. In addition to being an academic, Robin is also an activist, author, and artist. In this conversation, Robin shares what it means to be heart-centered, inside and outside of the university system. She provides examples and actionable takeaways for becoming and remaining heart-centered through difficult situations. Robin discusses how and why she sets boundaries when helping students navigate difficult situations, as well as her experience calling upon both mental health training and Cree cultural practices to lift the heaviness of others' stories. Robin provides a great example of the way heart-centeredness changes outcomes in challenging situations and how we all need community to survive and to thrive. Let's listen in. Welcome, Robin. We're so, so excited that you are here. Aw, well, thank you for having me. So the reason or the way that I found out about you and your work is through actually my TMU colleagues. And there is this uh, really awesome podcast that they run uh, called the Podagogies podcast. And I just found so much of what was what what you said in that conversation. It resonated so deeply with kind of myself and my my teaching values. So I was wondering if you can kind of give listeners a sense of what you mean by being a heart-centered individual. Sure. And I have to start by saying that that it comes from, first of all, it comes from um, what it means to be a Cree person. So I am Nahia Esqueo. I am Cree from, my family comes from Treaty 8 territory. We're actually from Lubacan Lake and the Big Stone Cree Nation is where my family comes from. Um, And as Cree people, we are taught that um, the heart is kind of the center of everything. And instead of living in the Western world where, you know, we're told not to follow our heart. We're told not to trust our emotions. We're taught that those are bad things that have to be contained. We as Cree people are taught that those are a gift and that really the most powerful kind of action, words, everything comes from your heart, not from your head. And in fact, I have an elder who says the longest journey is from your head to your heart or vice versa, right? Um, But particularly getting, getting people out of their head 
and into their heart. And so as somebody who's heart-centered, it means I feel, of course, I and I embrace emotion and I embrace, I, I would say also part of being heart-centered isn't just like feeling an emotion, but also choosing to lead with love and kindness and generosity. So when I'm, whether it's teaching, whether it's being in leadership role, whatever it is, for me, it's always leading from my heart and being true to myself, first of all, but also um, being kind. I Kindness is by far my favorite thing in the world. It is so, like, I love, there's a little meme that says, you know, kindness is cheap. You sprinkle that I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but you, you sprinkle that stuff on everything. (laughs) Um, And um, I think that's true. And I remember as somebody who went through a really rough time as a child and, and other times in my life, that sometimes it's moments of kindness that can change somebody's entire life. So it's about being kind. It's about um, approaching people, like giving people the benefit of the doubt. It's about loving and, and being generous um, and, and finding ways to help. If we're talking particularly about teaching, then it's about helping students do their best work, right? And do, doing that in a way that's loving, supportive, kind, and caring. And I know we tend to not want to talk about love or think about that in the school, like the context of a university, so I think we avoid love in the sense of like, we think of love as romantic or, or something else, but I think love can be expressed in so many different ways. And we tend to not want to bring that into the institution. And yet I think it has to be there. And love doesn't mean just romantic. It means caring for people. It means building relationships. It means being kind. It being, means being respectful. And so for me, everything I do comes from my heart and wanting to um, deliver those things in my relationships, whether it's as colleagues, whether it's as a teacher with students or anywhere in the world that I end up being, right? I think that's so, so, so beautiful. And that resonates with me very, very deeply. And just the idea of everything is a relationship that Mm -hmm. we can build and kind of foster and the classroom is no different. So showing love in the ways that we know how and, and, and trying to build relationships and make people better is exactly. all stuff that just, it, it fills me up. Well, and especially within, like, I think for me, being within an institution that wasn't designed for so many of us, post-secondary institutions, the very foundations of it are really in white heteropatriarchy and, and upper-class status. So many of us don't fit that. And so I think that the institution can be so violent for so many of us. So I think you have to make spaces of love and, and kindness and caring and heart-centered to disrupt that and to make it a place that's accessible for students that don't fit, you know, that standard norm of what an institution should be for. Yes, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I, I could tell already that we're going to end up crying. Just oh. prefacing. Diane and I cannot look at each other when we do these interviews because it ends up getting getting very messy, but it is. It's emotional, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um. So you spoke a little bit to your teaching and your teaching experience. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about how the heart-centered approach affects how you interact with students in terms of helping them with their well-being, like inside and outside the classroom? How does that change the relationship between student-teacher? Absolutely. And I will say something kind of cool. And I I think this is a, like, for me, it's I'm proud of this. I am proud that I've made connections with students and I've been teaching almost, oh my gosh, like almost probably 20 years now. 
And I have students who have, I've met along that 20 years who have stayed with me, even when they're outside of academia, um, because we build those relationships. And I think I see, I think that's wonderful. Like I am so honored that my students felt that much connection to me that they were like, even when we're not the classroom, I still want to know you and I still want to, you know, say hi and I still want to be able to share the good things that are happening in my life with you. I think that's really, really beautiful. Um, I think where I end up, so I end up teaching in women and gender studies. So what that means for me is that I end up dealing with students that are going through a lot. Students who are going, dealing with mental health issues, students who've experienced violence, students who are uh, experiencing oppression within the system. And so I always felt like it would be hypocritical to be a professor and be one of those hard ass professors. You know, the ones that are like, I'm out to show you how smart I am and how stupid you are. I don't care about, you know, your deadlines. Mine are the only ones that matter. And I was thinking, you know, as I got into teaching, it just seems so natural to me to be kind to people. Like I would have students who are coming to me. First of all, you never know what's going on in a student's life. Like, we don't know what's going on in anybody's world. And I always hate this presumption. I hear this all the time in post-secondary institutions about how students are going to cheat the system. And we always think the worst about students. Like, they're going to cheat. You know, they're going to take advantage of this. Well, I don't even, that's not my default. My default is if somebody needs more time or space, what's it going to hurt to give it to them? And if I can be generous because so many people aren't, I might be able to help that student be successful where they might otherwise walk away, right? And so when I talk to students, first of all, I will give a great example. I don't, I have, because the university makes you have it, I have a late policy in my syllabus. But the rule is that if you just come to me and you just say, I need more time, I don't even make students tell me why anymore. And I'll tell you why in a minute, but I literally say to them, if you need more time, come to me, I'll ask you how much time you need. You'll set the new due date and we're done. And I've stopped even asking. I mean, students still sometimes want to chat with me, but I've stopped asking as well because I don't think a student should have to confess the worst things that are going on in their life, whether it be experiences of violence, whether it be mental health issues, whatever. If they, you know, I'm trusting that they know what's best for them and what I can do to help. And so if that's the one thing I can do, I'm happy to do that. And I give them the benefit of the doubt. So I find that what happens is students that we might have lost, say if I were not a kind teacher or not generous, students I would have lost who would have walked away or failed end up doing the work because they're really eager to do it. It's just that life intervenes. And that happens to all of us. I mean, I'm sure each, everybody who's listening has had a moment in their life where they had a plan and life intervened, you know, something unexpected happened and it wasn't like you wanted to just drop the plan and not continue, but things have to change. Right. And so I think that's one of the benefits. I do find one of the things that happens to me a lot, which, you know, I'm, it's people, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard role to be in some days, but also I'm humbled all the time and honored by it. Um, But people often disclose to me 
And I actually hold space for that. I think that's one of the most important things I can do. I think because they know that I've gone through really horrific things and I'm very open about that, that they feel safe to come and talk to me when they're going through hard things. And I think that's important. You know, not everybody has someone to talk to. And if I can be that person, I'm happy to hold that space for someone else. So what I see in my teaching then is that I see relationships being built with students in a good way that helps them do their best work where they feel supported. I've had a lot of students who have said, you know, I didn't think I was going to make it, but you took the time to find ways to make it possible for me, um, you know, make a, or providing space for students to explore other options for assignments. So it's not just essays, they can be creative if, or, you know, even, you know, we've come up with other options where students are dealing with so much, you know, something big. And I'm like, how can we make this work and coming up with something? And so when students are cared for and when students feel like they're respected, then they do their best work. So that's how I see it play out quite often is that the students are really are doing like, I'm so surprised some days at some of my classes about how just a little bit of care and kindness transforms the entire class into a space of mutual support and collaboration that I don't see in other classrooms. It's so true. I mean, I feel like while during the pandemic, we all kind of took, I think, a a more um, blanket approach to to giving extensions and this type of thing. And I mean, even in a very deadline heavy industry that that we live in, in the world of printing and design and graphic communications, I mean, very few things in life are actually a hard deadline. So um, it's the way I kind of have seen my evolution as a teacher over the last 10 or 11 years is kind of almost, I, I envision it like a softening. Mm-hmm. Like I, I mimicked and I modeled the instructors who taught me for so long and that's all I knew. And that's what I, I did. And I kind of took that hard approach because I thought I'm young and I, I'm female and I don't want to be walked all over. But then I realized when I could kind of find my own way and soften in my, into my own teaching and practice, I do the exact same thing as you, whereby if you need a bit of extra time, like no discussion, yeah. no discussion needed. You don't need to to pour, as you say, pour your heart out or 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 kind of disclose all of the the not so nice things that are happening. Respect on that, right? Like where's right. dignity in forcing students to disclose horrifying, you know, like I just like the trauma of that to me is mm-hmm. just appalling. Why would you do that to another human being? Yes. Yes. So I, I, so I feel like I'm very much aligned mm, <laughs> with, with your, th- your thinking on this and I'm just, so kind of pivoting a little bit, but I'm wondering how, um, for you setting boundaries works in a context when you take this very deeply empathetic approach in your classes, like how do you grapple with some of the heaviness of the mm. conversations that, that your approaches might invite? Uh, well, and it does because, you know, like right now I'm teaching a class called gender and violence. You can imagine the kinds of responses. And you know what? It really becomes if you're going to be an empathetic teacher, if you're going to be a heart centered teacher, you do have to learn those boundaries because I find it really easy. I would say earlier on 
when I was younger, it was easier for me to take on what other people were feeling and carry it around with me. And then I realized, okay, wait, you can't do this to yourself. And I think I will say this, it has gotten easier for me because I have small children now that need me to be in a good way to be able to take care of them. So I can be firmer with my boundaries now than I think I ever was when it was just me, because I, you know, if it, when it was just me, I could be like, okay, I took too much on, I'm going to go and have a pouty day and I'm going to wrap myself in a blanket and stay in bed all day and watch horrible TV or something. Right. I can't do that anymore. So I find that boundaries actually do be, play a critical role. And there's like, I think when we think of boundaries, we often think about that as a bad thing, but I actually think it's a really healthy, good thing, right? That I'm able to say, here's my limits and here's how I handle things. So when I, I've gotten really good and I've done a lot of training because I wanted to make sure that I was, when I'm listening to students, especially when they're disclosing, I didn't want to do harm. Right. So I did a lot of mental health first aid, a lot of um, like uh, work with like crisis lines and things like that so that I knew how I could respond in a good way. But those also taught me how to, you know, put a boundary and be like, this is not my don't take this on. You can be there. You can be empathetic. But this doesn't have to belong to you. And so I think even just framing that in my head and reminding myself that every once in a while is really helpful. But then I learned for other strategies that help me cope when it does feel heavy. So for me, a lot of that is um, uh, pre-cultural practices, right? So when I walk away from something really, really heavy, I may end up having a smudge, uh, which is where we burn sage and we use the smoke to clean our spirit and our soul. So I'll often do that. Um, if somebody has carried a really heavy story with me, I may go lay down tobacco for them, which is a tradition we do as well, which is like, you're laying down tobacco and you're asking creator to, um, to protect that person, to hold them in their heart, you know, to make them feel that they're loved and and recognized. I think that's really helpful too. water for me is by far the biggest medicine. Like I will quite often after a really heavy day, go home and jump in the shower wash it off me because medicine in our culture is is living and it's medicine it really is and so I'll often wash it off I will process stuff I cry I'm a crier so I really appreciate your comments about crying because sometimes that's what I need to do to feel okay I also have a really good cohort of friends that I can go and talk to like if something really has hit me or something I can you know sit down with a friend and just reflect about the situation or if I think maybe I might have made a mistake I can talk to somebody about that but um I also you know I'm strict about my boundaries about what like I am the most generous person. I will give you every extension you want. You know, I will work with you, whatever. But I'm really strict around some of my time boundaries. So like I I have a strict email policy where I will answer emails through the work week, you know, from you can expect an answer from nine to five. But outside of that, I can't be there. And that was part of self-care for me, because if I was there continuously, then I have no downtime to take care of myself. And my kids help me remember that too, right? Because if I'm answering emails at after dinner and they're like, Hey mom, shouldn't you be playing with us? I'm not, I'm not living my best life either or theirs. Right. So I have some strict boundaries around those things about how to communicate me, communicate with me. You know, my office hours are by appointment so that there's focused time so that because that was another issue I found. I don't know about how this got to office hours, but 
I would just have open office hours and nobody would come. And then all of a sudden, towards the end of the term, everybody would come and not everybody would get in. And I was like, this is so disrespectful of everybody's time, my time, their time. So now it's by appointment so that people have a dedicated time to come and chat. I really try to think through what can I do to make even situations better. So I know if somebody's really struggling, I may take them outside to have a chat, take them off campus, um, you know, just meet them where they're at. So that's boundaries are critical because if you take it all on, you're going to feel the weight of it and you have to take care of yourself because you can't be a heart centered person and be unwell and take care of other people. It just doesn't work. You have to put your oxygen mask on before everyone else's. Exactly. And there are times, you know, there are times where I literally have to say to someone, I'm really sorry. I can't do this right now. Like something's happened and I've got a weight on my heart. I'm not in a good way to be able to be, I'm not in a good way to be able to offer the care that you need and you deserve better than that. And so that's where I will say, can we talk another time? Because I do think there's something about honoring that, that, you know, you have to be okay to be able to support other people, but also people, if you're going to be in that role, then people deserve the best of you, right? And if I'm not there, if I can't play my A game, then we have to just take a pause and I'll come back. (laughs) I mean, emergency is a whole other situation. Somebody comes to me in crisis. I literally, everything drops and I'm like, I'm here. Tell me how to support you you know, I'm just here to listen, whatever you need. So that does change things. <laughs> Empathy is good in a crisis. That makes total yes. sense to me. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about heart centeredness and I think the listeners are getting sort of an idea of uh, how you would approach teaching, living, being, uh, but we may be um, chair an example of a situation where, you know, like that heart centered approach changed an outcome or what it looked like. I know some of these uh, instances might be quite private, but so more generally speaking. Yeah, um, actually by far, I mean, uh, there is one of the best examples because I've spent the last 20 plus years involved in um, activism and organizing around missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And so when you're talking about that topic, it is a hard one. And I'm talking to all kinds of audiences. So I've been teaching in classrooms and talking about it. I have been, you know, I testified at the National Inquiry. I am talking to uh, people who are making policy. So I'm teaching all kinds of different audiences there. By far the most effective mechanism I have seen in 20 plus years of being able to get people on board with the importance of this is literally pouring my heart out to people. So as someone who survived being uh, sexually exploited in my teens and have a very intimate connection to um, the violence, sharing my story and being open and honest and exposing my heart in those moments, even when I'm crying, when I'm talking about the horrible things that I've experienced, people connect with that in a way that they never do with a lecture, ever. And I, that was really powerful to me to realize that I was never going to get people. Oh, I mean, I could get some people on board if I hit them here, but I get way more people on board in addressing this issue when I hit them here in the heart, right? When it's not their head, it's their heart. And so, you know, it does take a lot out of me sometimes to tell those stories. I mean, they're really hard stories to share, 
But in doing so, I connect with people's hearts in a way that actually motivate them to change in a way. So people who normally wouldn't have been, wouldn't have cared about it are like, okay, what do we do now? And they're starting to organize or students are like, I didn't realize this. And then I'm seeing them in every kind of event that we're having around these things. And to me, that was huge. You know, that if we can connect with people in their hearts and not necessarily their heads, that's how social change is made. It's not really about intellectualizing a problem because you're only going to get so many, but when you make people feel it, that's different. And I think that's a superpower in some ways to be able to make people feel, you know, because it's so easy to intellectualize this and so easy to create that distance and be like, no, this, this issue doesn't affect me. But when you're standing in a room, hearing from someone who's feeling their emotions as they're telling you about what this violence is actually like, that's powerful. And I've had so many people come up People who have changed their minds, of course, people who were like, I didn't actually realize how serious this was until I've talked to you. You know, other people who are survivors who've come up to me and said, thank you. I know I'm not alone anymore. Um, folks who have said, you know, like just the response about and being able to share their own stories, even if they weren't the same. So that's what I think to me, that's been the most significant kind of uh, eye-opening longitudinal study of why this approach matters because when people feel that's when change is possible I think there's something about that when you feel it in your heart I think you're more likely to make change I think you're more likely to do something and so to me that that's been powerful to realize that that's what we have to do in this battle is not necessarily hit people with facts and figures in their heads, but to hit them in the heart with this is what it's like to live this. Right. And I think that's powerful. Vulnerability is an incredible mm -hmm. superpower. And thank you for for being so vulnerable and sharing your stories and helping thank helping you. us to all understand well, then, yeah, you know, it's, I'm going to be honest, it's sort of selfish in a way, in a good way for me, because every, I didn't tell my story for 10 years and I ne very nearly died because I was taking risks with my life. I was drinking super heavily. I was literally like, I know now if I hadn't have spoken, I probably would be dead. I will be honest with, about that. But every time I tell my story, there's a little part of me that heals a little bit more right? Because it's another time that the weight is being lifted off my heart. And I'm not keeping the secret anymore of the guys who did this horrible thing to me. I'm not keeping a secret for the guys who paid to be able to do horrible things to me. I am owning my truth and owning, you know what? Yeah, this really horrible thing happened to me, but also look at me. I'm here now and I love this. I'm a badass. <laughs> and every time I share my story, I heal a little bit more too. And so to me, it makes sense, you know, it's hard, but it's part of the work in being able to undo, having kept a story secret for so long, it's part of the work to be able to open that up. And I heal every time I share that story. Mm, yeah, it's so powerful. So, so powerful. And I, it's kind of coming back to kind of the, the rigidity of the institution and, and the way in which university or post-secondary life is set up, I'm I'm curious, and I'm asking for a friend. Wink, wink, <laughs> nudge, nudge. 
Um, what might you say to a colleague who might suggest that showing kindness in the form of handholding uh, that students wouldn't get outside of the classroom, quote unquote, um, is so that we don't want to do that because we're not teaching them how to handle the quote unquote real world. And so I'm, I'm curious to know your perspective on on kind of circling back to the institution and the rigidity and the kind of very non-heart-centeredness sometimes that persists in the classroom, how you might approach that that answer. I'm going to be honest, I kind of will probably make them feel bad, <laughs> to be honest, because my thought immediately when I hear somebody say that, like, you know, the world's hard, they're going to have to get used to it. My thought is like, why does it have to be that way? You know what? As Indigenous peoples, we've known the strength of community right? That's how we survived for hundreds of years without capitalism, without, you know, all of the luxuries that we have now. We survived in relationship with the land because we took care of each other and we walked the journey together. And so as soon as somebody says to me something like, well, you know, the world's hard or this is how, you know, I've heard this so many times. Well, that's what I had to go through to get here. So they should too. And I'm just like, why, why do you want to be part of a system that's so abusive, that is so neglectful, that is so problematic. Why wouldn't you want to disrupt that? You, you've gone through it. You know what it feels like. So why would you do that to someone else? And I think, you know, I think about my kids, like when my kids are having a tough day, I'm not like, suck it up, buttercup. You know, <laughs> you got to get tough because the world's tough on you. I'm like, I give them a hug. We sit and chat about it. We problem solve. We troubleshoot together. That's what people do. We never, so few of us walk through the world alone. So I don't know why we pretend that that's what everybody should do. And I think there's such great strength in recognizing that um, it's through community. It's through relationships. It's through taking care of each other. That is actually how we are going to survive because individualism, I mean, I can get, I'm a sociologist by training, right? So we can get into like neoliberalism and individualism and how this has totally destroyed our societies. But that's the truth. You know, when we're left, I, we saw during the pandemic, when people are left to believe that they are responsible for taking care of themselves, then they get into things like hoarding. They get into things like panic buying. They do all those things because they're like, all of a sudden, oh my God, I have to take care of myself and my family and screw the rest of you. And that's not how it should be because if we took care of each other, none of us would have to do that because we would all make sure that everybody had what they needed to take to survive. So for me, when somebody comes at me with a question like that, I'm just like, why would you want to be part of the harm? Why would you want to be part of the violence that the system inflicts? Like, why, why? You know what that feels like. Why wouldn't you do something to change that, especially when it's within your grasp? Because as professors, we all have that within our grasp. Like I always laugh. I always, I'm part of a student appeals board here, at Brock, and, and I'm listening to these rigid like due dates and deadlines and things that professors have. And I'm just like, what is this about? Like the institution has all the room to move. I can move and fluctuate my deadlines. You know, I try to give, especially when a student's struggling, I'll be like, you know what? My grades are due here. As long as you get it to me, like by like two days before, so I have some time, I don't care. You know, we have flexibility. We have the ability to put an in-progress grade and get them more time. We have all kinds of mechanisms. I just don't understand why being a hard ass has become 
kind of the goal of the institution. Other than that's what the institution wants us to believe because the real world isn't like that. You know, there are, I mean, there are hard things, but community is what makes you survive. Community is, and we learned that during the pandemic, right? And the way that people collaborated to look out for one another when they, you know, when people couldn't work, when people couldn't access food, they took care of each other. So to me, I, I always bristle at that because I'm just like, why would you want to go there? I'd much rather be kind and generous and caring than be somebody who's feared uh, and not trusted and, and, you know, pushing the system that says that I'm responsible for myself and I have to, you know, work my butt off to survive in a world that's working against me every day. I just, I don't get it. <laughs> Great answer. Excellent <laughs> answer. Um, I was going to say, uh, Nat and I have spoken uh, at length about this just in passing, uh, about the the fact that in order to survive as a human and to thrive as a human, you kind of need two scopes. You need a microscope and a telescope. And I think that too many of too many of us um, in the world, but also in education, are really focused on that that microscopic view, the little bits and pieces. Um, and it has to be this way and it has to be that way because it's always been done that way or whatever the rationale is. But let's let's switch our viewpoint. Let's look at the telescope and say like, hey, what's the point of all this? Let's let's ask some big whys. And and we do have the power to make some of those those decisions uh, on our my, own. I have to tell you, that is my favorite phrase. As soon as somebody says to me, it's always been this way. So it has to be this way. That to me is an invitation because I am a raven trickster and as soon as I hear that I'm like oh really <laughs> I'm like huh I'm a sociologist and I happen to know that we socially construct most of the things in the world so if we build this stuff we could change this <laughs> and to me it's an invitation literally as soon as I hear that I'm like huh, it's time to do something different <laughs> I love because I I write I think that kind of thinking about it's always been this way it has to be this way stifles creativity it stifles you know like our world is changing. If we're not changing, we're going to get, we're going to be the way of the dinosaurs. We're going to go extinct, right? So we have to constantly, you know, be fluid to be able to, to rethink, to look at things in different ways. And I think we don't encourage that enough within the institutions, right? It's so rigid and so formal. And people get so scared when you're like me and you're like, the driver of change is really interesting to watch how people respond. Cause there are people who are like, yeah, yeah, I'm at the party. Let's do this. And then there are other people who shut down and are like, Oh my gosh, she's going to change everything. We're in trouble. Like it literally is like crisis mode. But as soon as I hear that, I'm like, just because it's been this way, doesn't mean it has to, that's an invitation. Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I've uh, only been in my role as chair for this first year. And I have to admit that I, I also a Raven had to slow it back down a little bit because I think, you know, change is wonderful and I could do it all day long, but that is not everybody's cup of tea, but you're right that like, we've always done it this way comes up in humans a lot. And the other thing that I wanted to add is one of the things that I think about often when people say, you know, like that hard ass, the real world, the real world's not like this just like you said, in our program, we're training future managers. And I don't want managers who are hard asses. 
right? Like that's such an easy tool to be able to shift what capitalism looks like, even if it, you know, stays in its sort of like crazy way. Um, okay. So we talked a little bit, you, you dropped little hints. Uh, and I think some of this hard centeredness is scary because it is so vulnerable. Uh, any advice for faculty, for students who would love to take this approach? I'm sage smudging. I got that shower. Got that. Give us more. Dive in. Dive. You know what? It gets easier. It gets easier. It, like anything, right? The more you practice it, the, the, the easier it gets. It's like, ah, uh, I, I don't know why I didn't make this connection, but recently I was listening. What was, I can't remember what it was I was listening to, but they were talking about, it was disconnected from sports, but somebody brought in a sports metaphor and they were like, you know, the reason why um, elite soccer players or it was, that was a specific group, but elite athletes do drills is because it becomes muscle memory so that when they're in the game, they're not even thinking their, their heads in the game and their body is automatically reacting. And it's sort of the same with being an empathetic or heart centered instructor. The more you practice, the more, the easier it gets. You don't even think about it. Like I don't even, I don't think about it consciously in my life every day, you know, which is why I kind of appreciate moments like this to be able to stop and reflect on that, but just dive in try it uh, and trust yourself. You know, there. here's the thing. There are always going to be audiences where your vulnerability is going to freak them out a little bit. That happens all the time. I literally have had been in rooms where I could physically see people move away from me because they're so like, oh my gosh, she's like, she's having all these emotions and <laughs> she's talking about stuff like, and that's okay. Guess what? They're always going to be that kind of people, but they're going to be in that same room. They're going to be people who are leaning in People who are like, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for my whole life for a teacher who got this. And those are, I don't know about other people, but those were the teachers that changed my life. The teachers who were vulnerable, the teachers who were kind, the teachers who were, you know, interested in building relationships and, you know, and, and learning and supporting my growth. Those are the teachers who changed my life. So just do it. Just get out there and be vulnerable. You know, don't be afraid. You're going to get resistance. And this is where I, well, I mean, at least in my, I get the, I have the defense of indigeneity, right? I know not everybody has that, but I get to say to folks, you know, that um, this is not how we as Indigenous people do it. But that also means that non-Indigenous people can do it this way too. You can make that decision as well, right? And so I push back. I always push back about the idea that we shouldn't feel our feelings. That's a Western concept. And think, and look how dysfunctional it is. I've just, <laughs> I just finished reading um, Prince Harry's autobiography and I was like, oh, this is what happens when you repress your feelings. Oh my God, right? That stiff upper lip, that's a whole colonial white dimension. And I think we, we need to push back. So you're always going to have people who are like, this is too much, Psst, whatever you know what, they're afraid of feelings. That's on them, you know, and keep going. And eventually, you know what, I've been able to carve out spaces at the institution where there are people who are like-minded or where people understand that that's how you come at things. And so they, you know, they honor that now, right? Where, you know, it's harder. It's interesting being in senior admin now and and what that looks like at this level because that that dynamic is interesting to come from being a teacher where I was pretty free to do whatever I want to suddenly be the focus (laughs) 
<laughs> and have to be, you know, represent an entire institution is quite different. Perfect segue. My next question for you is how has being heart-centered impacted you as a leader? How has that changed your leadership style? And maybe even kind of, uh, have you, did you have anyone to model? Like, was this something that's kind of evolved um, uh, and, and yeah, evolved on your own? Or did you have anyone to kind of look up to in that role? Honestly, both, right? I, you know, I, I've always watched women leaders because I, you know, it's funny, my mom would say to you that I've always been a leader. Like she can think back to, you know, even in kindergarten, when I was always picked to be the person who would be the lead character in a play, because I was dependable and I would do it. And I, you know, I was, she will say that to me. She's like, you've always been a leader, but watching other women lead and learning not only from you know, from their successes, absolutely, but also from mistakes. I think that's really important. We're all going to make mistakes and it's to learn from them. But then, you know, especially when I've gotten into senior men, women that I admire in senior men, I kind of watch what they do and um, I take recommendations. I ask for help. I think that's really, really key is asking for help and guidance. So trying to understand, being human again, being vulnerable, right? Because as a senior leader, you kind of want to appear like you know what you're doing, but guess what? I didn't study to become a vice provost. I studied to become a subject matter expert. So guess what? I need to learn these things. So I've asked, um, I think um, a lot of um, incredible Indigenous women have taught me how to be a leader um, and how to do that in a good way uh, that aligns with our, our values, even within an institutional system. I had to develop, I will say this, I have had to develop a little bit thicker skin coming into a significant leadership role because I went through a really rough phase when I was first appointed where some folks didn't appreciate my being appointed and then decided to harass me. Um, And I was like subject to like an anonymous Twitter account and I had all kinds of horrible things happen. And one of the, actually one of the kind of, this will be an interesting discussion, I think for folks, but one of the things I kept getting told was you just have to get a thicker skin. This is how it is. And I'm like, but why is this how it is again? Why, why do we accept that as being a woman leader, particularly within the university, that it's okay for people to attack us and privately in emails, publicly on social media, like, why do we accept that as okay? So part of me has had to get a little bit of a thicker skin to deal with that because that's the take of the institution, but I haven't lost being heart-centered. And it, you know, I've just gotten better at um, locating that kind of feedback. I'm always like, okay, wait, if it's, and I apologize for your listeners who may identify it this way, but I'm like, if it's an angry old white guy who's really mad that I'm decolonizing the university, I can deal with that kind of pushback. If it's an Indigenous person who's like, we don't think you handled this so well, I'm going to take a point of reflection and think those things through, right? Um, But I think, at least in my role, I think being heart-centered has been really helpful as a leader as well, um, because I... I can go into, because I'm driving, like, think about this. I am literally driving the bus on decolonization and indigenization at an institution that's built on colonialism. So no big deal, Robin, no big deal. (laughs) No big deal, right? 
but here I am. And that's a, you know, that's a lot of change. Like I, and I'm pushing hard because I came into this from an activist background. So I'm like, if you hire me, this is what I'm doing. And I think being heart-centered has let me have empathy for people and to understand how do we make effective change strategically in a way that doesn't scare people. Right. So how do we make these massive changes with everybody is like, we're on board. This is in our strap plan. But how do we do that in a way that I get buy in and support as opposed to people being so frightened that they don't want to even be a, um, they don't even want to be involved. So I think that's where heart centered strength is really helpful in leadership is that I'm able to sit and think, OK, you know what, if I was in this person's shoes, this would be really, really scary. So how do I communicate this with them in a way that makes them like I, I listen to their concerns, hold space for those, and then hold their hand as we walk through this together. Right. So I think that's been really wonderful. And I, I've watched other indigenous women or other women leaders too, especially at the university. I'll say, I would give a shout out. I don't usually do this very often, but our provost here at Brock is incredible. And she's been such a model of leadership. I watched her handle some of the most challenging things with grace and kindness and just absolute dignity. And so I really looked up to her as a way, you know, to, to be a senior administrator. I've never done that, right? And you know what? I've done a lot of reading in the last year. I've read so much about thinking about leadership and how to keep that heart centered, but also, you know, being able to to really make change in a good way, right? Robin, thank you for what you do. And thank you for making the journey from our heads to our hearts just a little bit easier. It's the hardest journey, but it's, you know what? It'll be the best journey you'll ever make. Incredible. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And it's been so lovely chatting with you. Aw, thank you both so much.